Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. This morning, I have asked Todd Vosper to share our reading from Job. Job 11, verses 1 through 20. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? And should one full of talk be vindicated? Should your babble put others to silence? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My conduct is pure, and I am clean in God's sight. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For wisdom is many-sided. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and assembles for judgment, who can hinder him? For he knows those who are worthless. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid person will get understanding when a wild ass is born human. If you direct your heart rightly, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness reside in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will have confidence because there is hope. You will be protected and take your rest and safety. You will lie down and no one will make you afraid. Many will entreat your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Kate Braystrup serves as the chaplain for the State of Maine Warden's Service, and she shares uh, about her unique ministry in the book, Here If You Need Me. Now, I shared the following story a few years back when we gathered to, uh, to give thanks for the life of Susan Ahern. It is about Braystrup's ministry to the brother of a young woman who had taken her own life after she had experienced a, a series of traumatic ordeals. And when the, the wardens locate his sister's body, Braystrup, as a chaplain, is asked to come in to minister to Dan, the brother. And, and she describes sitting together in a state warden's pickup truck as rain is falling outside. And Dan, as they have a conversation, eventually asks Braystrup if the church would be willing to bury his sister. As in, can the church do a funeral for someone who has taken her own life? Now, seeing that Braystrup is a little confused by this question, Dan explains how his sister Betsy 
had attended a church where the pastor had said that suicide was a sin that God could never, ever forgive. And Braestrup writes this. Very carefully, after several deep and calming breaths, I said, I don't know that pastor personally. I don't know what he knows or doesn't know about severe clinical depression, which is what your sister died of. But the game wardens have been walking in the rain all day, walking through the rain trying to find your sister. They would have walked all day tomorrow and walked in the cold rain for the rest of the week searching for Betsy so that they could bring her home to you. And if there is one thing I am sure of, Dan, one thing I am very, very sure of, it is that God is not less kind, less committed, or less merciful than a game warden. I hope you know that truth about God as well. This is week four in a series of messages on the Old Testament book of Job. Our theme is weathering the storm, and we are looking today at how what we say to those who are in the midst of suffering can either be very helpful or very hurtful. Job, as, as we have read in prior weeks, is the subject of a cosmic wager to determine the basis of his commitment to God. As we've seen, Job 1 and 2 tell us of two sets of tragedies that befall Job, leaving him destitute and childless and painfully afflicted with sores all over his body. And yet, Job seems to hold fast to his faith in God, even as he struggles to, to deal with and comprehend with this, this uh, reversal of fortune. In last Sunday's reading from Job, and before Job begins to lament and question his circumstances, we read these words from Job 3, 11 through, uh, Job 2 rather, verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, they met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. It, it is after 
these seven days and seven nights of suffering in silence that Job then begins to voice his wish that he had never been born. Perish the day I was born, he says. The night someone said, a boy has been conceived. That day, let it be darkness. May God above ignore it and light not shine upon it. That's how Job is feeling. Last Sunday, I talked about how critical it is if we are going to weather the storms of our lives that we need to express and not avoid, as we tend to do, our feelings of, of grief and sorrow. We need to experience those griefs. Now, if you uh, missed last week, I had several people tell me that that was among the favorite sermons uh, that I preached. And so, if you want to uh, see that, if you missed it, it is on our church website. And thank you for the, the affirmation and feedback. But Job's grief evidently becomes too much for his three friends. And they are unable to stay quiet, which is unfortunate. As Job finishes his first lament, each of these three friends takes a turn, uh, a turn explaining to, to Job exactly why his life has become such a, a mess. And, and then the cycle repeats itself three times throughout the book of Job. Job talks about his suffering and grief and his anguish. And, and then his friends respond to correct the errors of what Job is saying about his suffering and about God. Now, uh, in, in, in the first case, Eliphaz the Temanite, he says essentially that if Job were truly pious, he would know that God has reasons that we do not yet understand. His actual words are these. How happy is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Bildad the Shuhite then takes a stab at correcting Job, telling him, if you are pure and upright, even now God will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. But we already know, we've read chapters 1 and 2, and we know that Job is pure and upright because God has said so, and more than once. And then in the reading from this morning, uh, we hear Zophar, the Namathite, who is intent on defending God's ways as being both wise and just. Have you ever run across those people that need to defend God? Zophar's words, they come off as, as very pious. Oh, that God would speak and tell you the secrets of wisdom. It seems as if Zophar is saying, uh, you're too ignorant, Job, 
to speak uh, about God. So indeed, if we, we took what all these three friends say, we might make the mistake of thinking that these words of Scripture are a faithful testimony to God. We could actually rip them out of their context and we could use them to, to justify our beliefs about how God works. I mean, they're right there in, in Scripture. But at the conclusion of Job, when God eventually does speak, just as Zophar has just said he hopes God will, this is what God tells Elphaz. My wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. We can say a lot of pious-sounding things about God and be very wrong. In researching for this series, I've noticed that those who are trained in biblical scholarship and theology, they are tempted to, uh, by God's final assessment, to go back into the book of Job and to identify what it is that Job's friends say about God that is so wrong, that so incites God's fury. And, and to be perfectly honest, I did the same thing when I did a 10-page paper uh, on Job uh, when I was in seminary. My thinking was that if I could go back and I could figure out exactly what's so wrong about what these friends say, then I would know the right things to say about God. But what if the problem is not so much the content of their words as much as the hubris of presuming to speak on God's behalf while well, Job is sitting there in the midst of terrible suffering? And if we read through all the actual words that these friends speak to Job, I'm struck by this. It seems as if what they are doing is they are using their beliefs, their theological beliefs, to comfort themselves. When what they came to do and what they should be doing is offering themselves to comfort their friend who is in terrible distress. I think this is such an important lesson for all of us, that in the midst of pain and suffering and grief, our primary, perhaps our only task is to offer ourselves as a comforting presence and then withholding any theological jargon or advice no matter how well it's intended. That is how we help others to, to weather life's storms. But, but maybe you say, oh, but I, you know, what if somebody says something wrong about God? I think God can handle that without your intervention. <laughs> I think that's God's business. 
Last week, I mentioned my concern about that phrase, God has a plan. Along the same lines as that one are, there's platitudes like, God is in control. Or God doesn't give us anything we can't handle. Or God gives his hardest battles to his strongest warriors. I, I have this idea in my head of getting a bumper sticker that says, any statement about God that fits on a bumper sticker is wrong. But then I see the irony of that. From what I've said so far, I hope it's clear that it is unwise to assert our views about how God is at work in the lives of those who are suffering. These phrases, they might be consoling by the person saying them, usually because they don't know what else to say. But they're not usually all that helpful to someone who is in the midst of suffering. Uh, yes, for example, my daughter may be a, be a very strong young woman. I know that to be true. But if God specifically assigned her a rare autoimmune condition because she is supposedly one of his strongest warriors, well, like Job, I'm going to have some words with God about that. Just like Job. A second unhelpful thing we've uh, heard people say uh, in the midst of suffering is, don't forget to count your blessings. As one woman writes, it may seem that refocusing our attention on our blessings might help us forget our problems, but it usually has the opposite effect. When people ask us to minimize our struggles, it magnifies our pain. And that's what we see happens as the story of Job progresses. It magnifies Job's agony. So let me say that anything that falls into the category of advice giving is simply not as helpful as this question. Use this question. How are you coping with all that you're going through? How are you coping? A person who is suffering may indeed benefit by counting their blessings, but being directed to do this by someone who is not suffering can be aggravating. I want to conclude today by sharing... Um, what I believe is a, a helpful model for helping people who are walking through a crisis as we want to accompany them. Job's friends could have used this. It, it's called the ring theory. And we're going to keep this slide up as I talk it through. And what you do is you draw a circle, and in the center ring, you put the name of the person at the center of the current trauma. So in, the, in our scripture, it's Job. Job is the one who has been most dramatically impacted by that trauma, according to the story. Then you draw a circle around that first one, and you put the name of the person who is next closest to that trauma. 
And usually that's going to be a spouse. Uh, somebody, you know, the spouse of somebody who's lost their job is going to be in the second circle. And then you keep drawing larger circles and you fill that in. The next might be children and the next might be friends and the next might be acquaintances and you draw circles as they go out. And Job's friends, three friends, they would typically be about the fourth circle. And so the basic rule of this is comfort in, dump out. And what that means is that the person who is in the more center of the ring, they can say whatever they want to the people in the rings outside of them. For example, I wish I'd never been born. Or why is God doing this to me? Now, if you're in the next circle, you can actually say those same things, but only to the person in the next circle outside of you. But, but when uh, you are closer to the trauma, that's the goal, to, to offer comfort in, but you can dump out to the people who are in the outer circles. And I would say that this is where we need to resist the temptation to offer advice or, or a theological lesson to people who are located uh, in a circle that is smaller than the circle we would be in. Because what people in the circle inside of us need most is comfort and support, which, as I said, is initially what Job's three friends come to offer him. And they did perfectly for seven days and seven nights. Remember, you can say whatever you want if you just wait until you are talking to somebody in a ring that is outside your own. Other than that, the goal is simply to listen to people who are more in the center of the storm than you are. From personal experience, I can tell you that practicing this ring theory is a way to bless those who are weathering the storm. And as followers of Jesus, this is our call, to bless those who are weathering the storm. Let us be together in a spirit of prayer. Holy and loving God in this time, in this time where all of us are in the midst of a storm not of our own making and which we don't see the end of, it, it's tempting to speak our own perspective into the situation when what might be better for us is to listen, to listen to those who are hurting. Help us to find those people to whom we can dump our feelings to or who can do that for us so that we can offer comfort. God, sometimes the trick is simply knowing what not to say, what not to say at all. Even if it's true, even if it 
what we believe may be what those closest to us need is for us to simply sit with them and hear their grief and offer comfort. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.